Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. We're gonna get started! How is everyone tonight? I hope, I hope you guys are doing well. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGP uh, on this lovely rainy New York evening. It's threatening to rain. Um, my name is Matt Kressel. I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow, Fantastic Fiction at KGB. It's always free. When there's never a cover charge, all we ask is that you buy a drink hard or soft, tip your bartenders, Seiji and Dan working hard to keep you hydrated. Let's give them a round of applause. Dan's in the back, that's Seiji. Dan is shy, he's avoiding us. No, I don't know what he's doing. He's probably filling up the uh, ice or something. Um, so we have a mailing list. It's, there he is. Hey, Dan, wave. There he is. All right. I can see your belly button. Uh, <laughs> it's true, I could. Um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. All right, so... Uh, Oh, we have a mailing list at uh, kgbfantasticfiction.org. If you go to the website and you sign up for the list, we send you we send out like two or three emails a month just to remind you about the reading series. We don't spam or anything, um, so please sign up for that if you can. And uh, uh, next month, July seventeenth, we have Cadwell Turnbull and Theodora Goss. All right, August twenty first, Lara Elena Donnelly and Paul Whitcover. September 18th, Sarah Beth Durst and Sarah Pinsker. October, si October 16th, Nicole Corner-Stace and Barbara Krasnoff. November 20th, David Mack and our favorite guest, TBA. Oh, wait, no, but they haven't confirmed. Did they confirm? Oh, I know who you're talking about. It's uh, Max Gladstone. That's correct. Thank you. He did confirm. Yes, you're right. You're correct. I need to update my list. December 18th, Paul Tremblay and Nathan Ballinger. January 15th, we're already into 2020, isn't that crazy? P. Deli Clark. Yeah, no, he's January and February of James Patrick Kelly. Well, we'll have to reconcile our records, but P. Deli Clark is reading and James Patrick Kelly's reading next year, so. They might be reading together. We'll, we'll, we'll let you know if you sign up for our email list. Um, so, apparently, selling three or four hundred dollars worth of books is not enough for the bookstores to send someone here to sell books for us. So, um, our authors have to bring books themselves to sell. So, today, uh, Keith uh, R.A.D. Candido is selling uh, many of his books, and I don't think Chuck has it, is selling books today, but you can buy Chuck's uh, most recent book, or you can pre-order it, right? It's not out yet. Uh, online wanderers. So we hope you will do that. Um, we really like to promote authors here. We hope you will 
buy their books even though they're not necessarily available right here at this place. We hope you go home or maybe on your phones right now and say, oh, I love that story. Let's go buy it. Please do that. Authors love that. We also love when you review our books. If you really like a book, please, wherever, Amazon, wherever, whatever your favorite Goodreads, whatever you can think of, please. That helps so much. Um, all right. Anything else? Any other announcements? No. I think that's it. All right. Our first reader is Keith R.A.D. Candido. Keith is celebrating the 25th anniversary of his fiction writing career. That's great. Congratulations. His media tie-in fiction, which earned him a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2009, covers 33 different universes from Alien to Zorro. His original work includes stories set in the fictional cities of Cliff's End and Super City, as well as somewhat real locales of New York and Key West. His 2019 novels include Mermaid Precinct, the latest in his fantasy police procedural series, Alien Isolation, based on the classic movie series, and A Furnace Sealed, launching a new urban fantasy series taking place in the Bronx, where Keith currently lives with assorted humans and felines. Here's <laughs> Keith DeCandido. I, I, I have to start by saying that my last name is pronounced DeCandido. I should have told Matt that ahead of time. Um, that's okay. Everybody, I've, I spent the last 50 years correcting that pronunciation. I assume I will spend the next 50 years correcting that pronunciation. Uh, I'm going to be reading from A Furnace Sealed, which is, uh, as Matt said, a new urban fantasy series that takes place in the Bronx. Uh, in my experience, lots of people write not just urban fantasy, but all sorts of fiction that takes place in New York City, which for most people usually means Manhattan south of 125th Street. Uh, upper Manhattan and the outer boroughs are generally ignored, with the occasional exception of Brooklyn. Um, the, the, the Bronx is not very well represented, and so I am trying to fix that one book at a time. So uh, I'm starting with chapter five of A Furnace Sealed, which is about a guy named Brom Gold, who is a courser, he, uh, which is basically a supernatural hunter for hire. Um, and the supernatural part modifies what he hunts, not himself. He's just a guy. But um, it's what he does for a living. He is also uh, an MD and uh, works in an emergency room a couple days a week. He has already dealt uh, with a couple of werewolves who once a month he brings to a dog run in the Bronx and lets them run around uh, on the night of the full moon until that's over and then lets them go home. Uh, and also uh, some immortals are being killed, seemingly by vampires. And binding spells have been kind of unraveled, and so that all of that is stuff he's been dealing with. And he's just been hired by a couple to stop a woman who calls herself Madame Verité from binding the Loa, which are the voodoo gods. So I was already on my third mug of coffee, the first when I got up, the second after my shower, the third in a travel mug with me in the car when I drove over to Jerome Avenue. The four train ran elevated over Jerome from Bainbridge Avenue all the way down to 170th Street. And that subway meant that there were tons of shops all up and down the street. The one I wanted was one of about a billion little shops that sold newspapers, magazines, candy, cigarettes, and lottery tickets located on the corner of 193rd. Like a lot of them, it catered mostly to people coming on and off the four at the Kingsbridge Road station a block away or going into or out of St. James Park across the street. Well, okay, they also catered to another clientele, but we weren't interested in anything on or under the counter on the left as you came into the narrow shop. That had uh, bulletproof glass protecting the guy behind the counter, currently a Pakistani guy who nodded high and waved me back. One of these days I really needed to get the guy's name. We didn't want the magazines and papers that took up the entire right-hand side wall either. No, we went past those and past the big rack of greeting cards that blocked the view of the back wall, including the door 
that led down to the steep metal staircase that went down to the basement. Downstairs was a Hanjan's magic shop. The man himself wasn't in. His nephew Madawi was, and he was talking on the cordless phone. He waved at me as I came down the metal stairs. The place was dank, lit only by crummy fluorescent lights since there weren't any windows. Nah, he ain't here, Madawi was saying. Unlike his uncle, he was born in the Bronx, so he didn't have a Hanjan's thick West African accent. It's Sunday, he's in church. Nah, I ain't telling you what church. What, you telling me you found Jesus now? Bullshit, just give me the message. I'll let him know when he gets back. I don't know when, I ain't found no Jesus neither. Besides, you know how he likes talking to folks, could be ours. Yeah? Well, fuck you too. Shaking his head, Madawi pressed the end button on the phone. Another satisfied customer? Madawi snorted. <laughs> yeah, something like that. What you need, Gold? I need to talk to a Hanjan. He really in church? Hell no! Only time his ass goes into a church is to deliver their holy water. I blinked. Wait, churches buy holy water from him? They do if they want the shit that works? Well, I hope his holy water smells better than his talisman to stop a unicorn. Madawi frowned. What, it didn't work? I smiled. It worked fine, but when I activated it, it smelled like a moose fucking a dead octopus. Yeah, well, you want the shit that works, it's gonna stink. Well, maybe, but I've had some complaints. The first being from my hooter, I pointed to my oversized schnoz. Madawi chuckled. Look, I'll pass it on, but you know my uncle. I do indeed. I also noticed that Madawi hadn't actually answered my question about when a Hanjan would be back, which led me to think he either didn't know or couldn't tell me. Whatever. I had a binding spell to stop. Hey, um, I want to double check. What would the components be if you want to cast a binding spell on a Loa? That got me another snort from Madawi. <laughs> a thing of lipstick to kiss your ass goodbye. Who'd be stupid enough to do that? Woman over in Seton Falls Park, apparently. Shaking his head, Madawi said, well, there's lots of binding spells, but if you want to bind a Loa, you're gonna need an obsidian candle, Thick rope, red ribbon, and sandalwood. I winced, except for the candle. That was stuff you could get over the counter any place. Hell, you could probably get all of that at Target. Uh, does it have to be an obsidian candle, or can any black candle do it? Depends. On what? If you want the binding to work or not. <laughs> Ask a stupid question. Yeah, okay, thanks, Madawi. And tell your uncle, moose fucking a dead octopus. Got it. I grinned. Thanks. I hopped back upstairs and went out through the newsstand, sliding past a stooped-over Latina woman who was buying one of every possible kind of lottery ticket, and walked out into the briskness. It was as chilly today as it had been Friday night in the dog run, and as I stepped out onto the Jerome Avenue sidewalk, a cold wind sliced through the air and through the painkillers that were doing a mediocre job of keeping my ribs from throbbing. The unicorn he fought earlier bruised his ribs. So. Unicorns are nasty. Just <laughs> At least now I knew for sure what components I needed to look for. It wouldn't be enough to just stop Madame Verité. I needed to catch her in possession of the spell components. The obsidian candle was the key, since those could only be used in magical rituals. Combine them with the ribbon, rope, and sandalwood, and I'd have a case for Miriam to sanction her. Miriam is the, uh, Miriam Zarelli is the war dean of the Bronx. She is in charge of all magical activity in the area. If not, she'd just try again on the summer solstice. My car was blocked in by someone who had double parked. I sighed. It was Sunday. The parking meters on Jerome weren't even active today. Why did people have to double park? 
I saw three spots just down past 193rd, and they just had to double park by me. I sighed again and got into my Corolla, hoping the driver would rematerialize soon. It was already 11.30, and I had to get over to Seton Falls Park before Mrs. Truth did her mojo at noon. To distract myself from the tedium, I grabbed my smartphone and called Katie. Katie is one of the werewolves who asked him out on a date. After five rings, I got voicemail. Hi, it's Katie. Do the thing after the beep. Hey, Katie, it's Brom. Um, congrats on braving the mighty sushi. I saw the video online. Um, I just want to apologize for subjecting you to the dead body that prompted it, even though it did lead to sushi, which is, in my experience, yummy. Shaking my head, I tried to rein in the babble. Uh, anyhow, I wanted to talk to you about that coffee. Call me when you get a chance. After I ended the message with Katie and spent the better part of a minute wondering how stupid I sounded on that message, someone ran out of the Chinese food place with a big shopping bag in his hand. He headed for the car that had blocked me in, gave me a little apologetic wave, and then drove off. For the third time, I sighed, wishing I could just afford a car service. Miriam had been making noises about getting me an account with one. At least then I wouldn't have to worry about parking. That was always the biggest problem, parking somewhere free or being able to pay for it. Today was Sunday, so that wasn't an issue, and at least now there were all muni meters that took plastic, so I didn't have to stock up on quarters. I had 20 minutes to make a 15-minute drive. I went up Jerome, past the end of the four train, only occasionally stuck behind a slow-moving or stopped bus that I couldn't get around because of the elevated train, to 233rd Street, then turned right. There was an accident on the road that was starting to back things up, so I turned down a side street and went down 236th, which would have been fine, except the one-way street was blocked in by a garbage truck that was stopping every 10 feet. By the time I got past the garbage truck, the accident had cleared. I'd been better off staying on 233rd. I turned back onto that road, zoomed over to Seton Falls Park, probably running a red light or two, and then finally pulling up to a spot right by the High Rock Playground entrance. Since the falls were near that entrance, that was handy. Less handy was that it was already a couple minutes past noon. I ran over to the fence to look down at the falls. Calling them falls were giving them a hell of a lot of credit. Basically, it was a downhill creek. And if it hadn't rained recently, there wasn't even that much by way of water. It ran between two stone walls, and there was a rock that acted as a bridge. Not that you needed it. The falls were wide enough to step across, but the bridge was there anyhow. There were trees and rock formations all around it. A woman sat on that rock mini-bridge, cross-legged, a black candle in front of her. That just had to be Madame Verité. I couldn't see anything else because there were half a dozen people surrounding her. I wasn't even sure that was a real obsidian candle. I kind of hoped it wasn't because then nothing would work and she'd be exposed as a fraud and I wouldn't have to do anything. I went in at the playground entrance only to be met by two dark-skinned people. You are Mr. Gold? The man asked. He sounded like the voice on the phone. And you must be Mr. Alty. Sorry, I'm late. The traffic on 233rd was horrible. She is starting the ritual. Good, I said, trying to put a good spin on it. Uh, means I can catch her in the act. I just hoped I could stop her before she bound to Loa. Last thing we needed were some pissed off voodoo gods floating around. I ran down the pathway that led to the falls. The people standing around Mrs. Truth were transfixed by what she was doing. Now that I was close enough to see and smell, I knew from the spicy undertone of the flame that that was definitely an obsidian candle and I could also smell the sandalwood. Madame Verité was chanting something in Latin, which surprised me. I figured a voodoo ritual would be in an African language, not a European one. Or if it was a European one, that it would be French, not Latin, but whatever. As I got close, I heard the phrase ultimam ligabis repeated three or four times. My Latin wasn't so much rusty as oxidized. 
Hell, aside from the Torah portion I read in my bar mitzvah, my Hebrew wasn't much better, but I knew how this particular binding spell went from when I was learning stuff with Miriam when I was a kid. That phrase meant final binding, and it was a refrain that ended the spell. Panicking, I ran toward the rock and said, all right, that's enough, this has to stop. A few people turned to look at me with confusion. A funny-looking Jew barreling into their ritual was not on the agenda, but most ignored me. The candle flickered as she picked up the rope. The red ribbon was tied in the middle, and she held the part with the ribbon over the candle. The flame burned the ribbon, and in that moment, I knew we were screwed. Bracing myself as the cold spring breeze mutated into a big wind, I wondered if I had any weapons in the car that would do any good against a god. Just as I realized the answer was, hell no, the wind got worse and cumulus clouds appeared overhead. Gasps and cries of amazement came from the crowd. And then the clouds went away, and the candle flickered and went out. Madame Verité opened her eyes, and she looked very confused. So did everyone else. Probably I did, too. I only caught the tail end of it, but that was a binding spell, she was saying, and based on what Madawi told me, she had the right ingredients, and it was noon on the equinox. But no Loa was bound, and neither was anything else. The spell just kind of fizzled. She stared right at me. What have you done, outsider? She asked in an exaggerated Haitian accent that half the time sounded more like a fake Scottish accent. Why have you ruined my ritual? I hadn't done a damn thing, of course, but she didn't need to know that. I reached into my back pocket and pulled out a small booklet. To the untrained eye, it probably looked like a set of temporary tattoos bound into a small vinyl case, but each of those stickers had a restriction signal on it that would prevent anyone it was applied to from using any magic or magical item. Only a wardeen or a member of the Curia could remove the restriction. To my annoyance, I only had one left. Luckily, I only needed one. As I removed the final sticker from the booklet, I said, My name is Brom Gold. I'm a courser, and what you're doing here isn't approved by the Wardeen of the Bronx. I'm afraid I'm going to have to confiscate the spell components and report this to Wardeen Zarelli. You'll be hearing from her real soon now. You're not taking my tings! I shrugged. You're welcome to try to stop me. I didn't really do menacing very well. But I found that matter-of-fact-sounding threats were way more effective than the ones that tried to sound mean and nasty. And I really hope that was true today, because my bruised ribs did not want to fight. Luckily, these were all just ordinary folks who didn't want any trouble. True, they were greedy pishers who wanted a god to do their bidding, but not enough to engage in fisticuffs over it. So they didn't do a thing as I walked right up to the mini-bridge and slapped the sticker on Mrs. Truth's arm. The sigil disappeared instantly, as if it was never there. What was that? She yelled as she shrunk away from me and batted at her arm where I placed the restriction. Just a little something to keep you away from magic until the Wardeen can talk to you. You got no right to do this! She bent over to pick up her obsidian candle. These are mine and you can't... Suddenly she stumbled backwards. What the hell? I noticed she lost the fake Haitian accent for those three words. Getting her faux speech pattern back under control, she asked, Why can I not touch my tings? Like I said, the restriction I just put on you keeps you away from magic. I bent over and picked up the obsidian candle, the sandalwood, and the rope, the ribbon was ashes, and cradled them in my arms. Expect to hear from the wardeen. Turning my back on Madame Verité and ignoring the nasty looks I was getting from her followers, I walked away from the falls and up the hill to the playground and the exit. The Altes were waiting for me. Trevor had a big smile on his face. Thank you, Mr. Gold. His wife, though, wasn't smiling. What is to stop her from doing this again in six months? I was about to say that the restriction would, but that only lasted for about a week. Uh, the Wardeen. 
I'm going to be bringing this stuff to her, and she'll sanction Madame Verite. Ms. Alte looked dubious. And what good will that do? Shuffling the items I had cradled in my left arm, I grabbed the candle with my right. See this? It's an obsidian candle. It's why the spell had any shot of working. Only place you can get one of these is at an officially licensed magic shop. And the microsecond she's sanctioned, they won't sell her squat. Can't do the ritual without it. Well, what if she has more of them in her closet? I shook my head. These things have a half-life. After a day or two, they disintegrate. That's the thing about magic. The more powerful it is, the more unstable it is. Trevor looked at his wife and said, Stop pestering the man, Marguerite. He did his job and stopped that horrible woman. I suppose. She reached out a hand and said, Thank you, Mr. Gold. I shuffled the items in my arms again and returned the handshake, then also shook Trevor's hand. You're both welcome. I'll email you the invoice. With that, I went to the car, put the stuff in the trunk, got into the driver's seat, and immediately called Miriam. Hello, Bram. Hey, Miriam. I've got good news and bad news. Well, it's not really good news, just news. Um, you got to sanction somebody. I gave the quickie version of what just happened with Madame Verité, promising to email her the full details. I heard her fingers clacking on a keyboard. I'll get that sanction out now, in case she beelines for a shop. Although, with the restriction on her, she won't be able to touch anything in a shop, but still, best to let the managers know. I'm just glad you stopped her before she cast the spell. Well, see, that's the bad news. I didn't. Oh, fuck. No, no, I said quickly. It's okay, the spell didn't work. So she sucks at spellcasting. How is that bad news? I shook my head, even though she couldn't see that over the phone. She doesn't suck at it. Based on what I saw and heard when I got there, past the last minute, she nailed the spell just fine. And she had an obsidian candle, rope, a ribbon that she burned, and sandalwood. Which spell did she use? Hembatoons? No, actually, it sounded like Silverio's, believe it or not. Miriam sounded as surprised as I felt when I heard Mrs. Truth rocking the Latin. Yowza, it didn't work? Yeah, and we're starting to get a pattern here. We got the unicorn tapestry, we got the crane down at the Met, huge mention to Jin that got loose yesterday, and now we got this. That's three binding, binding spells coming unraveled and one not working at all. It's freaking me out a little bit. I'm a lot more freaked out by your rogue vampire, but I'll see if anyone else is reporting binding spells gone bad. Thanks, Miriam. Thank you for not calling me Mimi once. I could hear her grinning over the phone. Hey, at least I could do after almost fucking up the werewolves. When can I bring by the spell components? Bring them by tonight before your debauchery. I chuckled. Sunday night's a bunch of coursers all gathered at a bar in Woodlawn. I didn't make it every week, but I figured Hughes was going to be there toasting his daughter's graduation tonight, and I didn't want to miss that. Sounds like a plan. Later. After ending the call, I started the car, threw it into gear, made a U-turn on 233rd, and wove my way around double-parked cars in the right lane, and cars waiting to make a turn from the left lane on that major thoroughfare before hitting the Major Deacon Expressway and taking it to my place in Riverdale. On the way, the phone rang, but I couldn't really pay attention to it until I stopped. Once I pulled into the driveway in front of the garage, I put it in park and grabbed the phone. There was a missed call and a voicemail, both from Katie. I played the voicemail. Hey, Brom, I'm so glad you called. I was kind of chickening out, so I'm really glad you took the step, because I kind of got nervous. Sorry, sometimes the brain weasels take over, you know? Anyhow, I'm actually on my way to that coffee shop on Riverdale right now, so if you're free, you could join me. Or not. I totally understand if you're not free. Call or text me and let me know. Thanks. Smiling, I quickly composed a text. Just finished a job. Meet you there in 10. I opened the garage, which revealed several stacks of plastic totes in the back, a dozen plastic shelving units on the right-hand side and in the middle, and a big pile of empty boxes on the left-hand side. I put the obsidian candle, rope, and sandalwood in one of the empty boxes piled on the side, and then put the box on a shelf. 
As I did so, the phone beeped with a text from Katie. Great, see you there! Plus a smiley face, a heart, and a coffee cup. I closed the garage door and headed over to Riverdale Avenue, which was one of the main drags with commercial stuff on it, ranging from restaurants to drugstores to doctor's offices to banks. A new cafe had opened up on the corner of Riverdale and 236th Street, and I walked inside to see Katie already sitting with both a latte and a tablet in front of her. She looked up at me as I entered, smiled brightly, and rose. Hi, Brom. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for inviting me, I said, smiling right back. Nice to get together when it isn't business. I got her to frown for a second. I guess it is business for you, isn't it? Very literally. I'm going to get some coffee. Okay. She smiled again and sat back down with her tablet. I ordered a regular coffee, paid, and brought it straight to the table. Katie had been watching me, and when I sat down across from her, she shook her head. Wow, I don't think I've ever seen that before. I blinked. Seen what? Someone just get a black coffee in a cafe without putting anything in it. No latte, no macchiato, no espresso, just a straight-up black coffee with no dairy, no sweetener. That's so, so boring. She chuckled. I was going to say old-fashioned. Thank you. In both my professions, it's best to keep the caffeine no frills. Just pour it into the mug and pour it down your throat. No fuss, no muss. Both professions? She squinted in confusion. You're not just a courser? That threw me for a loop. I thought everyone knew I was a doctor. No, uh, I'm also an MD. I work two days a week at Montefiore's ER. Wow, I had no idea. Well, it pays a few extra bills and keeps my shingle polished, as it were. Besides, it's handy to give, help give first aid to other coursers under the table, you know? Makes sense. She sipped her latte. Thank you so much for coming. I've actually been thinking about asking you out for a while now. Miriam and Anna Maria kept telling me to just ask. I was hoping you might ask me, but they told me that was a lost cause. I sighed. Yeah, well, I'm not that good at flirting or being flirted at, apparently. There was this woman in med school, Sarah Mankiewicz, who apparently had the hots for me the whole time, and I completely missed it. When did you find out? At her wedding. <laughs> Katie almost snarfed her latte. Oh my god, really? Yeah, she just took her vows with some putts from her neighborhood, and she was dancing with all her med school friends, and when she got to me, she told me right there on the dance floor that if I just asked her out, I'd probably be the one marrying her instead of the putts. With a small smirk, Katie asked, why didn't she ask you out? I pointed at her. The exact question I asked! I laughed. Did she not get the memo that it's the 21st century? I mean, you did. I did, yes, and boy, was it not easy. I sipped my coffee. Because I'm so oblivious? Well, no, because of my anxiety. Honestly, for a long time, I only left the house on the nights of the full moon. Oh, I couldn't think of anything intelligent to say to that. I'm lucky. I inherited the house I live in from my parents, and it's all paid off. I make enough money from freelance work I can do from home to pay the taxes on the house and for food and stuff. Wow, I had no idea of any of this. Luckily, I had the presence of mind not to say that out loud. I felt like enough of a schmuck as it was. What do you do? Well, transcriptions, translations, editing, some production and design work. For a long time, I'd go weeks without ever going outside and only opening the door for deliveries of grocery and mail and things. At least until full moon time. Uh, Miriam was the one who convinced me to start seeing a therapist. It's because of her, the, the therapist, not Miriam, that I've been doing the fish pictures and the live videos and things. It helps me engage with other people, even if it's only online. I've even met a few people that way. That's great. I smiled. I gotta admit, there are days when those fish pics make a crappy day a lot better. Oh, thank you, Brown. That's sweet. If you don't mind me going all doctor on you, are you on any meds for the anxiety? I have Xanax, but I only take it when things get really bad. I nodded. Good. That means it's not as bad as it could be. You don't have to take something every day. And Xanax generally works as long as you don't drink any alcohol. I never do anyhow, she said, shaking her head. 
I don't like the taste of alcohol. I've always been able to taste it in anything I drink. Back in college, before the anxiety got so awful, I was always the designated driver. Now I can't even drive. Gave up my license about a year after my parents were killed. Killed? Recalling that lycanthropy was sometimes inherited, I added, please tell me it wasn't a courser. No, but they were killed on the night of the full moon. They used to go out in the backwoods of Van Cortlandt Park or Pelham Bay Park and run around all night. One night someone found them and shot them. Damn, I'm sorry. Thanks. I've been kind of a mess ever since. She finished her latte and then said, Enough about me. Tell me some more about you. Why'd you become a doctor? And how'd you become a courser? Well, the two are kind of related, actually. And I'm going to stop. So... Furnace Sealed is available from Wordfire Press. You can get it through all the usual online book dealers. Uh, the ebook is available from Amazon, from bnn.com, IndieBound, uh, Kobo, iTunes, whatever. The print book, unfortunately, is only available through Amazon. You can get it in hardcover or trade paperback. Um, I have a few of my books over here for sale, not including a Furnace Sealed because I was a failed my saving roll versus dumbass and didn't order books in time. <laughs> but um, uh, you can also order any of my books through my website. If you go to decandido.net, they're ordering links for my recent stuff, links to my blog, my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, my Instagram. Basically, all the methods of cyber-stalking me are available at decandido.net, uh, so you can find me there. Thank you all so very much for coming. I really appreciate it, and enjoy the rest of the week. So we're going to take a little break now, 10 or 15 minutes, have a drink. Enjoy yourself, talk among yourselves, but definitely have a drink whether alcohol or not. <laughs> not to support the bar, which lets us do this for free anymore. Thank you. Don't forget to tip your waiters. On Everybody, shh. Okay, before we start, <laughs> shh, shut the hell I hear talking. No talking. Anyway, right. Anyway, before we start the second half, I have um, an arc to give away. This is my forthcoming book, Echoes, the Ghost Around Holly. It'll kill any bug in your house. <clears throat> it's very, it's like 700-something pages. It's all originals with three reprints, two classics. Uh, everything else is original. And I'm trying to, and I'm so, I hate trivia questions. So, I just, Matt, how the heck am I going to do this? So he suggested, and I agree, that whoever birthday is closest to the night, <laughs> how do you know? You don't know. Anyway, we'll get it. When's your birthday? Karen Euler? June 13th. Anyone? What's today? Wait a minute. Today's June 19th. Okay. Anyone closer than the 13th? No one? I'm sorry, that doesn't count. <laughs> so is that it? Okay. You want it? I mean, do you want it? Wait, what? What? Wait. Someone said it was what? Someone said the 24th? Okay, so which, wait. Sorry, Karen. Okay, whoever is the 24th, come and get your book. Who was it? Come and get your book if you want it. You have to carry it home. Sorry, Karen. Karen, I can give you a copy. I have extra copies. Enjoy it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I, I do have a couple of extras. <laughs> All right. Our next guest tonight. Hello. Shh. Come on, guys. Chuck Wendig. Chuck Wendig is the New York Times best-selling author of Star Wars Aftermath, as well as the Miriam Black thrillers, the Atlanta Burns Burns books Zeros slash Invasive, and Wanderers, which is coming in July 2019. 
held when in July, you know, I think. Second, the second. So in a few weeks, you can probably pre. I'm sure you can pre-order you can totally it right now. You can. He's also. Yeah, pre-orders are very good for writers. He also has written comics, games, film, and more. He was a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, an alum of the Sundance Screener, Screenwriters Lab, and served as a co-writer of the Emmy-nominated digital narrative Collapsis. He's also known, sorry, I keep going this way, and I realize I'm losing the voice, uh, the sound. He's also known for his popular blog, theterribleminds.com, and books about writing such as Damn Fine Story. He lives in Pennsylvania with his, I keep going in and out, I can hear it. Anyway, <clears throat> he lives in Pennsylvania with his family. Please welcome Chuck Wendy. Well, hi. How are you guys doing? Oh, hello. Oh. oh. I was sitting on a screw over there, like coming out of the thing, and so I don't need to have a colonoscopy now, so I'm, I'm good. It was, a gen it was a gentle extraction. Um, so uh, I am indeed going to read from my new book, Wanderers, uh, which is coming out on July 2nd, and I will stand here and stare at you while you all pre-order it on your phones, because we can do that now. Um, it is uh, being compared a little bit to The Stand and Station Eleven. It's sort of like if those books had a baby in an orgy with Michael Crichton, and this is that book. Uh, it is that sort of not post-apocalyptic, but pre-apocalyptic and apocalyptic novel um, that begins uh, as a plague of sleepwalkers uh, joined together uh, unwittingly and crosses the country. And the book is largely about the people who follow with them, people uh, that call themselves shepherds. So. The beginning of the book is, of course, the beginning of that experience. So uh, I'm going to read for you tonight. I'll read uh, the prelude, and I'll read the first chapter, and then uh, we'll go from there. <coughs> oh, I, you know, I'm going to take my water, too. I see. Okay. I think I'm all right. I won't drink while I'm doing this. I hope you're all drunk enough, because then I wouldn't really have to get this right. Uh, so... I'm going to read first a quote that opens the book from the Wilderness Act of 1964. A wilderness in contrast with those areas where man and his works dominate the landscape is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. And the prelude is called The Comet. The world discovered the comet six months before it appeared in the sky, visible mostly to those on the west coast of North America. The woman who discovered it, Yumiko Sakamoto, aged 28, was an amateur astronomer in Okayama Prefecture in the town of Kurashiki. She found it on a lark, looking instead for an entirely different comet, a comet that was expected to strike Jupiter. Yumiko said that the discovery changed her life. In an interview with the Asahi Shimbun newspaper, she said, up until now, I have been focused too much on material things, getting a good job, finding a good husband, but I am relinquishing such shallow pursuits as romance and career. I will go back to school and learn more about our world and the cosmos beyond it, not for financial gain, but because the pursuit of knowledge is itself noble. She also said she was joining the growing asexual and aromantic community in Japan. She felt that the world was quote-unquote overpopulated already and did not need her to add to its burden. The comet, named Comet Sakamoto after her, passed within 
one AU astronomical unit of the Earth on June 2nd. Not close enough to be a danger, but close enough that one could see it with the naked eye. And close enough to earn it the Great Comet moniker, joining other famous comets such as Halley's Comet and Hale-Bopp. Yumiko was going to begin her new academic study the following October, but did not live long enough to see the chance. She died of a brain aneurysm the night the comet passed overhead. Part 1. The Brood. That got filled up while I was running. That's good. <laughs> I swear I have not been drinking heavily. Th thank you. Thank you for filling that up. Unbeknownst to myself, I just see light. All right. <clears throat> it's very dark up here. It's super dark up here. We're good. Everybody's good. <laughs> Chapter one, the first sleepwalker. Last night's amateur astronomers got a treat in the form of clear skies, a new moon, and comet Sakamoto. The last three great comets were Lovejoy in 2011, McNaught in 2007, and the famous or infamous Hale-Bopp in 1997, which of course spawned the Heaven's Gate cult, whose members committed mass suicide in the belief it would allow them to hitch a ride with an extraterrestrial spaceship following that comet. You're listening to Tom Stonekettle of Stonekettle Radio 970 BRG. Stonekettle Radio Show, 970 AM WBRG, Pittsburgh. June 3rd, Maker's Bell, Pennsylvania. Shayna stood there looking at her little sister's empty bed, and her first thought was, Nessie ran away again. She called to her a few times. Honestly, after Nessie had stayed up late last night to watch the comet through Dad's shitty telescope, Shayna figured the younger girl would still be in bed snoring up little earthquakes. She wasn't sure where the hell Nessie could be. Shayna had been up for an hour already, making their lunches, finishing the laundry, putting the trash and recycling together so she could haul it up the long driveway for tomorrow's pickup. So she knew Nessie wasn't in the kitchen. Maybe she was in the upstairs bathroom. Nessie, she paused, listened. Nessie, come on. But nothing. Again the thought, Nessie ran away again. But that didn't make much sense. The first time Nessie ran away, now that made sense. They just lost their mother, lost her in a very literal way. The four of them went to the grocery store and only three of them came back. The feared mom had been taken or hurt, but eventually security cameras from the Giant Eagle grocery store showed that nobody kidnapped her. She simply strolled out the automatic doors like nothing was wrong and then walked out of their lives forever. Mom became only a big question mark, stuck in their cheeks like a fish hook. But it was clear that their mother did not want to be part of their lives anymore. That, Shayna knew even then, had been a long time coming. But the realization did not hit Nessie, and still had not truly reached her even now. Nessie believed then that it was Dad's fault, and maybe Shayna's too. So two years ago, almost to the day, after school was done for the year, Nessie packed up a backpack full of canned goods and bottled water, plus a couple candy bars, and ran away. They found Nessie four hours later at the wooden bus shelter on Granger, hiding from a sudden rain squall shivering like a stray puppy. When Dad picked her up, she kicked and she thrashed, and it was like watching a wrestler try to pin down a tornado. Soon he gave up and said to her, if you want to run away, you run away. But if you're thinking of going after your mother, I don't think she wants to be found. And that was like watching a glass of water tip in slow motion. Nessie collapsed in his arms, and she wept so hard it can she could only catch her breath in these keening, air-sucking hitches. Her shoulders shook, and she pressed both hands under her armpits as if hugging herself. Eventually they got her home, and she slept for two days and then slowly, but surely, came back to life. That was two years ago. 
Today, though, Shayna could not figure out why Nessie would want to run away again. The girl was 15 now. She hadn't hit the wall like Shayna had at that age. Uh, as Dad put it, Shayna went full teenager. Mopey, mad, hormones like a kicking horse. Shayna was almost 18 now, and she was better these days, mostly. Nessie was still alright. She hadn't turned into a werewolf. She was still happy, still optimistic. Her eyes bright like new nickels. She had this little notebook in which she wrote all the things she wanted to do. Scuba dive with sharks, study bats, knit her own slippers like my mom used to do. All the places she wanted to go, Edinburgh, Tibet, San Diego. All the people she wanted to meet, the president, an astronaut, her future husband. She said to Shana one day, I heard that if you complain, it reprograms your brain like a computer virus, and it just makes you more unhappy. So I'm going to try to stay positive, because I bet the opposite is true, too. That notebook sat there on her empty bed right now. Next to the bed was an open box. Nessie had gotten some package in the mail, some sciencey thing she must have ordered. Shana borrowed a part of it, a little test tube, to hold weed. The girl's daffodil yellow sheets looked rumpled and slept in. Her pink pillow still showed her head dent. Shana uh, peeked at the notebook. Nessie had started a new list. Jobs I might like, question mark, question mark, question mark. Included zookeeper, beekeeper, alpaca farmer, photographer. Wait, photographer, Shana, Shana thought. That's my thing. A weird flare of anger lanced through her. Nessie was good at everything. If she decided to do the thing that Shana wanted to do, she would do it so much better, and that would suck, and they would hate each other forever. Well, no, Shana would hate Nessie. Nessie would, of course, love Shana unconditionally, because that was Nessie. Shana called out for her again. Ness? Nessie? Her voice echoed, and nothing but the echo answered. Shit. Dad was probably already in the so-called milking parlor. He said if they were going to be part of the artisanal cheese movement here in Pennsylvania, they needed to start talking like it, damn it. So he would be expecting Ness and Shana to staff up the little shop by the road. Then eventually, he'd come get one of them to head to the cheese barn to check the curds on the gouda or get the blues draining, and then mix the silage and feed the cows, and ah hell, the vet was coming today to look at poor Belinda's red, crusty udders, and hey, maybe that's why Nessie ran away. School was already out, and summer vacation wasn't much of one. Everything here was work, work, work. Shana wondered if Nessie had the right idea. She could run away, too, even uh, just for the day. She could call up her buddy Zig. He would show up in his Honda. Maybe they'd smoke some weed, read some comic books, talk shit about the seniors who just graduated. God, she had to get out of this town. If she didn't get out of this town, she would stay here forever. This place felt like quicksand. Of course, Nessie was way too good a girl to have run away again, so maybe she got the jump on Shana and she was already out in the shop. Little worker be that one. What was the song on Dad's old R.E.M. album, Shiny Happy People? Yeah, that was Nessie. <laughs> Shana had already eaten, so she went and searched for the little clip-on macro lens she used over her cell phone's camera to let her take photos of things real close-up magnified. Little worlds revealed. The micro made macro. She didn't have a proper camera herself, couldn't afford one, but she was saving up to get a DSLR one day. In the meantime, that meant using the phone. So maybe she'd find something in the stable or in the cheese-making room that would look real cool up close. Flaking rust, the red needle in the thermometer, the bubbles or crystals in the cheese itself. It hit her where she'd left the lens last time. She was taking pictures of a house spider hanging in the window, so she left the lens there on the sill. She went there to grab it, and then something outside caught her eye. Movement up the driveway. One of the cows are loose, was her first thought. Shana headed to the window. 
Someone was out there walking. No, not someone. Little Dum Dum was halfway up the driveway in her PJ pants and pink t-shirt. Barefoot, too, by the look of it. Oh, what the hell, Nessie? Shayna ran to the kitchen, forgetting that lens. She hurriedly popped on her sneakers, ran out the door to the back porch, nearly tripping on the one sneaker that wasn't all the way on yet, but she quick smashed her heel down into the shoe and kept on running. She thought to yell to her sister, but decided against it. There was no need to draw Dad's attention. He'd see they weren't out in the shop yet, and he'd give him a ration of hot shit about it, and Shayna did not want to hear it. This was not a morning for nonsense, and already the nonsense was mounting. Instead, she ran up along the driveway, red gravel crunching underneath her sneakers. The Holsteins on the left bleated and mooed at her. A young calf, she thought it was Moo Radley, stood there on knock knees, waiting... Just laugh. What, should I pause for Moo Radley? We can do that. I mean, I'm, I'm proud. <laughs> Moo Radley stood there on knock knees, watching her hurry to catch up to her Tweedledum sister. Nessie, she hissed. Nessie, hey! But Nessie did not turn around. She just kept on walking. What a little asshole. Shayna jogged up ahead of her and planted her feet like roots. God, Nessie, what are you doing? But it was then that she saw the girl's eyes. They were open. Her sister's gaze stood fixed at nothing like she was looking through Shayna or staring around her somehow. Dead eyes, dead like the flat tops of fat nails. Gone was the luster of wonder, that usual spark. Barefoot, Nessie continued on. Shayna didn't know what to do. Move out of her way? Stand planted like a telephone pole? Her indecision forced her to do just a little of both. She shifted left, but still in her sister's inevitable path. The girl's shoulder clipped her hard. Shayna staggered, taking the hit. The laugh that came up out of her was one of surprise. It was a pissed-off laugh, a bark of incredulity. Hey, that hurt, dummy, she said, and then grabbed for the girl's shoulder and shook her. Still, nothing. Nessie just pulled away and kept going. Nessie! Nessie! Shayna waved her hand in front of Nessie's eyes. Wave, wave, wave. She had the thought then, a stray thought she pretended could be true, even though she knew deep down it couldn't be. Oh, she's just playing a joke on me. Even though Shayna was the prankster in the family, and Nessie's only real joke was a cabinet of knock-knock jokes so bad, it made their bad joke-loving father wince. Still, just in case, she shook her finger, or took her finger, and poked Nessie's nose as if, she, as if it were a button. Boop, she said. Power down, little robot. Nessie registered nothing. She didn't even blink. Had she blinked this whole time? Shayna didn't think so. Then she saw ahead a big rain puddle. She warned her sister, Nessie, watch out, there's a... But too late. Nessie plodded right on through it, splish splash, feet in the water almost up to her ankles. Still going and going, like a wind-up toy set to beeline in one direction. Still staring ahead, still moving forward. Arms stiff by her side, her gait sure and steady. Something's wrong. The thought hit Shayna in the heart like a fist. Her guts went cold, her blood to slush. Even in the warm morning, she couldn't hold back the chills. But she tried anyway and said to herself, Maybe she's just sleepwalking. That's probably what this is. So, okay, no, Nessie had never done that before, but maybe this was how her brain chose to handle all those hormones running through her like a pack of racehorses right now. The question was, did she go get Dad? Ahead, the end of their driveway stretched out. There, the cheese and dairy shop made to look like a little red barn. There, the mailbox made also to look like a little red barn. This one blue, and with a cow silhouette cut out of tin and stuck on top. And there ahead, the road. The road. God, if Nessie walked to the road and a car came by, she yelled for her dad, screamed for him. Dad! Dad! 
but nothing, no response. He might have been out in pasture or out in the barn, going to get him meant leaving Nessie alone. In her head, she could hear the make-believe sound of a truck grill hitting her sister, knocking her forward, crunch of bones under tires, and that thought made her queasy. I can't get Dad, so I'll stay with her. This can't go on forever. Sleepwalkers eventually wake up, don't they? Ten minutes. Ten minutes had gone by. Nessie reached the top of the driveway, pivoted as if on an invisible track, and then kept walking like no big deal. Down Castle Road, down Orchard, toward Herkimer Covered Bridge, the old one over the Shiner's Crick, the one with the Amish hex on it. Nessie kept on trucking, mouth open just a little, as if in small awe of something only she could see. All the while, Shayna talked, faster and faster, like a jabbering idiot. Nessie, you're freaking me the fuck out. Quit it, please quit it. Are you having some kind of breakdown? Are you having a stroke? Their grandmother, Mumum, had had a stroke, and then a bunch more, and it turned her weird. She lay in the bed, talking sometimes in English, sometimes in Lithuanian, but most of the time in straight-up gibberish. Sometimes she tried speaking to them, sometimes just as people who weren't even there. It left Shayna with the understanding that a stroke broke your head like a stepped-on cookie. Please stop walking, she pleaded. I'm going to go get Dad. He's probably already wondering where you are. Jesus, he's going to kick our asses. Probably my ass, because you're his favorite, you know. Oh, don't pretend like you didn't know that. You look like Mom. I look like, well, him. And nobody really likes themselves, she thought to herself. Just quit this shit now. Now. Now? Ahead, the bridge loomed. You probably shouldn't walk on that thing barefoot, she thought. She'll get a splinter. Then she might get an infection, and now they said antibiotics didn't really work like they were supposed to work anymore, and Mr. Schultz, the biocide teacher at school, said, we are entering the post-antibiotic age, so that decided it for her. Shayna jogged ahead of Nessie and turned toward her, walking backwards so that she faced her sister, holding up her hand and gesturing like, gesturing like it was a game show prize. Nessie, listen up, dummy. If you don't quit this right now, I am going to haul back and I am going to smack the crap out of you. Okay? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna boom. I'm just gonna wail on you. Last chance. But her threat failed to register. Nessie did not register it at all. Shayna blinked back tears. Don't show her your crime. A stupid thought, but still, she was the big sister, and Nessie shouldn't have to see that. I don't want to hit my baby sister. I mean, okay, she did want to hit her. But in a fantasy way, in the theater of her mind, it sounded great, but for real, hitting her scared the shit out of her. Okay, I'm gonna do it, she warned. Nessie did not care. Nessie did not hear. She did not even see her. Shayna lifted her arm, palm ready to smack. She winced, she gritted her teeth, and she swung her hand. But then she pulled the slap at the last second, crying out in frustration, God damn it, Nessie! A shadow then fell over them. Shayna turned suddenly as the black top of Orchard Road gave way to the creaking boards of Herkimer Covered Bridge. Above, the beams hung like bones. Grass and sticks dangled. Nests of birds who, whose babies had gone. Everything else belonged to the kingdom of the spiders. Webs draped between webs, flies mummified. Spears of light poked through holes in the wood. And ahead, Shayna spied a new danger in that light. The glittering glass of a broken bottle. Kids came here to drink sometimes. Shayna came here to drink sometimes. <laughs> Quick, Shayna hurried ahead, trying to... I didn't do that. <laughs> Tried to kick away some of the glass, but there was just too much of it, and Nessie walked ineluctably forward. So, okay, new plan. We can kill her with kindness. Not literally, of course, but instead of smacking the taste out of her mouth, Shayna decided to hug her. Do we need to pay attention to whatever's exploding outside? <laughs> that makes sense. 
as long as it's not us, we're fine. Yeah. Uh, killer with time. Practicing with time. It's time to get, you flex a little bit. Uh, okay, new plan. Kill her with kindness. Not literally, of course, but instead of smacking the taste out of her mouth, Shana decided to hug her, grab her, stop her. That was easy enough. Nessie was just a little slip of a thing, but Shana was bigger, broader, more the tomboy. But that was an image she'd been trying to shake now for the better part of a year. It wasn't because she wanted to get a boy or anything, but okay, whatever, it's exactly because she wanted to get a boy. Cal Paulette, specifically, as a matter of fact, Cal, who liked photography, whose dad owned a bank who had a very lickable jawline. Cal, who thought her name was Shauna. Fuck you, Cal. <laughs> Shana said, all right, little dingleberry, I am coming in for a hug. A stray thought landed in her head like a rock through a window. When was the last time we actually hugged each other? She opened her arms and grabbed her sister. The girl had surprising strength. She kept going, pushing Shana back, hard enough, in fact, that Shana's sneakers slid on the wood. Not willing to be denied so easily, Shana planted her feet hard. And with that, Nessie finally stopped. But she didn't stop struggling, though. She kept on wriggling like a mouse in a snake's crushing coils. She began thrashing, and Shana's mind went to that memory, the girl fighting their father in that old bus stop shelter. A sound rose up out of her now, a low whine, an animal sound. A new fear buried itself under Shana's skin like a burrowing tick. This was the sound of something in pain, something alarmed, full of rage. Nessie, settle down, it's okay, she whispered to her sister. Louder, she said it so that she could be heard. It's okay, I said. The girl started to feel hot, like a fever starting up. Shana kept her grip, but pulled away just enough to look at her sister's face. Nessie's cheeks had grown flushed, an angry red streak stretched across her forehead. The whites of her eyes suddenly erupted red like grapes crushed pop. Nessie, stop, please stop. Oh God, oh shit, stop. Nessie's teeth began chattering. Blood trickled from her nose as her body began to spasm and rise in temperature. It was hot, too hot, and Nessie's skin felt like the hood of a black car that had been sitting too long in the summer sun. And Shana thought to double down to hold on tighter, bucking Bronco style, but a panicked certainty screamed through her mind. Let her go, let her go now. So Shana let go, backpedaling. Nessie blinked for the first time this morning. Relief flooded through Shana. I did it. She's okay. But then her eyes clouded over once more. Her eyeballs rotated in her head like lottery balls, and she pinned her gaze again on the horizon. Nessie walked forward anew, the shakes gone, her nose and upper lip still bloody. Sheena collapsed and wept as her sister kept on walking right across the broken glass, seeming not to feel it. Thank you guys for coming out and for listening. Uh, Wanderers comes out in a couple weeks, July 2nd. So, thank you. Thank you very much. You can hang out. Uh, if you have books, you just bring them. If, then they'll sign them. If you want to buy books from Keith, you've got books coming twice. And uh, otherwise, we'll see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.